Turn to Luke chapter 24, please, this morning. Luke chapter 24. It's a passage which I trust many are familiar with, and yet for all its familiarity, I trust that God will bring new light out of his word for us this morning as we consider it together. So Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 25. And he said to them, uh, this is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Uh, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted uh, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then verse 44, following after he appears uh, to uh, his disciples, uh, this is subsequent to his resurrection, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's a Hebraism, all right, uh, referring to what what we know as the Old Testament scriptures and that Jewish people refer to as the Tanakh. That's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketaim, all right? So the Torah is the law. Uh, the Nevi'im are the prophets, and the Ketuvim are the writings or the Psalms, all right? So Jesus here is using a Hebraism as he's addressing Jewish people, saying, so all, everything in the scriptures, right, um, concerning uh, myself. Uh, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then if uh, you would open your catechisms, it's in the back of the hymnal. Back of the hymnal on page 874, we're looking at Lord's Day 6. We uh, entered last week into the uh, second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. What are the three sections of the catechism? Guilt, grace, gratitude. It follows the outline of the book of Romans, all right? Romans chapter 1 through 3 is the universality of sin and the universal condemnation of all those descended from Adam. Then from chapter 3 through chapter 12 is grace or deliverance. As Paul says uh, in Jesus Christ, the gospel has been made known, uh, which is uh, salvation from sin or deliverance uh, from guilt. And then chapter 12 through 16 is how we are to thank God for delivering us from sin and misery. So guilt, grace, gratitude, uh, misery, deliverance, and gratitude, however you have uh, memorized those three parts. So last week we entered into the second part, deliverance, and we're looking at Lord's Day 6 today. I'll read the questions and ask you to respond with the answer. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because... And why must he also be true God? Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? And how do you come to know this?
two points uh, to the sermon on this section of the catechism. Uh, first of all, the gospel message, and then secondly, gospel mission. So gospel message and gospel mission, all right? <clears throat> the connection between those two is that the gospel message produces gospel messengers, all right? The gospel message produces gospel mission, or if you will, gospel messengers. Uh, and that is what we have stated in the mission of our church. It's in the bulletin every week. Uh, equipping members to share the love of Christ by reaching out to their neighbors in the metropolitan New York City where they live, work, study, and play. The gospel message preached to you each and every Sunday is intended to produce gospel messengers. All right, that's you and that's me. So let's look first of all at the gospel message. All right. The gospel message is a message of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life by trusting in or believing in or faith in uh, the work of another, that is, Jesus Christ, all right? Salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life does not come by anything that you are innately, inherently, uh, in who you are. You may be the best-looking person on the face of the earth, but that won't get you uh, entrance into heaven. You may be the nicest person on the face of the earth, but that will not get you into uh, heaven as well. Salvation comes by believing in the work of another, and that is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is eternal life. And we come to this gospel message, unlike some segments of the Christian church teach, not when we first turn to the pages of the New Testament and the gospels, but we see it in all of scripture, all right? Look at verse uh, Luke 24 with me, all right, where Jesus himself teaches us, all right? This isn't my theological perspective, all right? It's not uh, something I learned in seminary or a systematic theology book. It's something which is taught by Jesus himself. Look at verse 44. Everything written about me in the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, in the law, the prophets, and the writings must be fulfilled. That is, everything about which we read in the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. And not just about his person, but about his work. Read on to verse 46. Thus it is written. Written where? In the Tanakh, right? In the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. In the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, right? 39 books, right? Thus it is written, what is written? That the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, uh, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, all right? So Jesus himself, this is a very important uh, lesson, all right? Jesus himself teaches us how we ought to be reading the Bible, all right? And we don't read the Bible with a wall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think it was Augustine uh, who said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. There is a, uh, a symbiotic connection between the two, if you will. And there is progress from Genesis all the way to the New Testament to Revelation of the gospel. The gospel doesn't begin when we get to Matthew, all right? I know that in all your Bibles, as in mine, there's like a page divider between uh, Malachi, that Italian prophet, and Matthew, right? Right? But there's no wall 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right? It's one Bible, okay? And as we noted uh, years ago when we were at SDA, it's one story from old to new, all right? It's one story, one gospel, one way of salvation, always by faith in the work of another, all right? That is of a substitute, all right? So, Let's begin. Go all the way back to Genesis, and let's look at this, all right? I'm going to run the risk this morning of being somewhat of a, more like a Bible study this morning, but since that's our catechism lesson, I'll run that risk, all right? And I realize that as good Bible students, this is uh, uh, not new news to you, but I want to make the connection explicit, if you will, all right? So Genesis chapter 2, first of all, and verse 17 Before we get to the solution, we need to know what the problem is. Before people hear the good news, they have to hear the bad news. In order for people to get saved, they need to know that they need to be saved from something. That is, they need to know they're lost, right? And their lostness comes from Genesis uh, chapter 3, but we get the preface to that in Genesis 2, verse 17. God sets forth his requirements in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam and Eve and all of us as descendants from Adam and Eve, right? Uh, Verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Two requirements, all right? God required on the one hand perfect obedience, all right? And uh, one prohibition, so there was perfect obedience. God does not grade on a curve like many of our teachers did in school, right? We don't have grade inflation in the Bible like we do in many colleges nowadays, right? You can put in your work and you can get an A even though you did C-level work. No grade inflation in the Bible, right? God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't say, oh, just try your hardest and I'll work the rest out. Don't worry about it, right? No, he requires perfect obedience, all right? And a penalty for disobedience. Look at the text. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it must die. God is a loving and merciful God, but God is also just. God cannot wink at sin. God cannot overlook sin. God takes sin seriously. And why? Not just because, as the Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's not only uh, failing to keep the law and not doing what God requires, but sin is intensely personal. All right? Sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God that requires an infinite, that is, eternal punishment in hell. In Genesis chapter 6, we don't turn there, but in Genesis chapter 6, God tells us that sin is intensely personal when he says, God looked down and saw that the thoughts, and, uh, thoughts uh, of man's heart were evil continually, and it grieved him or pained him in his heart that he had ever created man. Now, I don't know about you, but that really convicts me, right? I love the Shorter Catechism. I love its brief, succinct, theologically correct answers. What is sin? Sin is any want to conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But it omits this personal dimension. When I sin in thought, when I sin in word, when I sin in deed, God is grieved. It grieves his heart. When you sin, God's heart is grieved. Personal. And the soul that sins, it must die. Right? Verse 17. Okay? So, perfect obedience, 
and a penalty for disobedience. This is why the world is in such a mess. It's because of the entrance of sin into the world, right? God created the world to be beautiful. God created the world to be plentiful. God created Adam and Eve to be in a harmonious, loving relationship with him, but they disobeyed. And in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And sin entered the human race. Sin entered into the world, and now there's thorns and thistles. And when we go to work, we have to put up with train delays. When we go to work, we have to sweat by our brows to get through the day. But looking at the clock, when's this day going to be over? Right? It's all because of sin. And the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Your heart and my heart. And hence, you, me, and everyone descended from Adam needs a savior. All right? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is known as the first gospel or the proto-evangelion, if you will. Now, you remember Adam and Eve sinned, right? And there are three parties involved in the fall. There's Satan, Adam, and Eve, right? And, of course, God. But God comes and he pronounces curses on the respective parties of the fall. Look at Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the promise. Note it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or her seed and your seed. And this is very important. Catch this, right? Because The book of Genesis, if you'll remember when we preached through the book of Genesis many years ago, the book of Genesis is divided in sections of um, uh, uh, family histories, right? Uh, And the family histories are important because it's tracing the line of the seed, all the descendants from Eve, right? So, um, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, ultimately, remember Luke 24, this is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus says, when you read this, you should think that it's talking about me, all right? So what's going on here, all right? First of all, we see the promise of a Savior, all right? We see the promise of a Savior. And note, all right, here we see the love of God. We see the love of God because remember those two requirements, right? God can't wink. God can't overlook. Doesn't grade on a curve, right? What's God going to do? He's going to provide the satisfaction for his own requirements. He's going to provide someone who will be perfectly obedient when, uh, for us that were disobedient. And he's going to provide someone who will die the death that you and I deserve to die. Salvation is faith in the work of another. And we see that here. All right, let's look a little bit more closely. All right, a little bit more closely. First of all, we note that it's going to be a male seed, singular, right? He shall bruise your head. Whose head? This is being spoken to the serpent, being spoken to the devil. All right, he singular male seed descendant right will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. <clears throat> now, 
this takes us back to the catechism, and I'm not going to go get the book. I'm just going to kind of refer here, all right? What, what, what's being spoken of this male seed? First of all, he's going to be supernatural. That is, he's going to have to be divine because he's going to have, have, to, he's going to have to be able to conquer Satan, all right? He's going to be supernatural. He's going to be divine, right? <clears throat> no mere man can bring about salvation, can accomplish salvation, right? <clears throat> and yet, he's going to be human. He's going to be born of a woman. He'll be fully God and fully man. Who must this mediator be? Fully God and fully man? Jesus Christ, all right? Right? <clears throat> and it's going to come at a cost. Look at the text. I will put enmity, hatred, hostility between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, between your offspring, your descendants, and her offspring. This is the antithesis. It's the God-ordained hostility, hatred between the church and the world, between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of Satan, between the forces of righteousness and the forces of wickedness, between the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of God. All right? There's going to be a war. And we see it immediately in Genesis chapter 4. Where do we see that hatred? Where do we see that warfare? Cain slays Abel. The seed of the serpent slays the seed of the woman. And that warfare continues throughout the entirety of the Bible. That's why when we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, Jesus says, they're going to persecute you. They're going to bring you between, they're going to bring you before the religious authorities, the political authorities, they're going to throw you in jail, and they're going to kill you. And that's what Paul did, right? He was running around the eastern end of the Mediterranean, persecuting Christians. That's the antithesis. That's the hostility. But we all know from Ephesians 6, as we went through it, that our, the war is not against flesh and blood so much as it is against powers and principalities. That there's a cosmic conflict going on in heavenly places. And this speaks of that as well. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, between Christ and the devil. And that conflict comes to A high point at the cross of Calvary. You remember what Luke says in the book of Acts? Satan worked in the heart of Pilate. Satan worked in the heart of the religious leaders of the Jews. Satan worked in the hearts of all the people to stir up acrimony and enmity against Jesus. A perfectly innocent man whom they, whom they uh, put on trial and though he was innocent, they condemned him as a criminal, and they put him to death. And Satan is in the rafters laughing in joyful glee, wringing his hands. He's gotten his way. He has crushed Jesus. But the promise is fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. As that cross is lifted to the sky, it crushes Satan's skull, and he is defeated and made a public spectacle of before the entire cosmos. Yes, Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, but it's Jesus who will crush the serpent's skull. I don't know, chills going up and down my spine, right? It's good stuff. The promise, the promise of a savior. God will satisfy the demands of his own justice. 
God will bring one into the world who will live a perfectly obedient life for those who are disobedient and die a perfect death to pay the penalty for the sins of his people on the cross as a substitute in their place. Let's read on. Our catechism says God began to began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. And so we see the first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. The catechism goes on and says, and then God proclaimed the gospel through the patriarchs. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Just quick turn through some scriptures here. Genesis 22. Take this as a refresher class in uh, Jesus' hermeneutics. All right? Jesus' interpretation. Genesis chapter 22. You remember Genesis 22, right? What's, what's going on here? The sacrifice of Isaac, right? God tells take Isaac, go up on the mountain and kill him. It's a test to see whether or not he really loves the Lord, right? Let's uh, read verse 7 and 8. Isaac said to his father, my father, he said, here, here am I, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where's the sacrifice? Read on. Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide. God will satisfy the demand. God will do it. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went up together, and you remember, he raised the knife. And then God said, no, spare him. And substitute the lamb instead to take the penalty, to take the punishment. Through the patriarchs. Look at Exodus chapter 12. I'm reading this. I'm read, this year I'm reading the Bible chronologically. I don't know about you. One of the many uh, legitimate methods of reading through the Bible in a year. I'm reading chronologically. I'm up to Genesis. I just went through this chapter this week. Fascinating. You remember it's the Passover, right? And the plagues come on Egypt. And that's, a, that's another cosmic conflict, right? Why? Because Pharaoh is divine, Right? And all the diviners, all the magicians in Pharaoh's court <clears throat> are trying to rival uh, Moses, right? And uh, uh, the, it's a cosmic conflict because God, all, this, all the plagues are of the gods of Egypt. And God is showing them that they're not God. You'll remember the repeated refrain, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the one true and living God. And of course, the last is... God's going to take the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Read it with me, if you will. Verse 21 in Exodus 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel, said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves uh, according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the frame making the sign of a cross on the doorpost. None of you shall go out of the door of the house in the morning where the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood of the substitute lamb, he will pass over you and accept the lamb as a substitute for the firstborn and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. One more, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. If you know your Bibles, you know that this is Yom Kippur, all right? This is the Day of Atonement. It's the holiest day on the Hebrew calendar, all right? 
when the sins of Israel are all atoned for, when the one priest enters the one uh, holy of holies to once a year offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. All right? And that's Leviticus 16. And um, in Leviticus 17, um, in verse 11, we read this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Your sins must be covered. Your guilt must be, your, must be paid. Your debt must be pay, taken care of. And what does God do? He says, I've given it to you. I've given you the lamb. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, Right? God is going to satisfy his own requirement. God requires that the soul that sins, it must die. God says, no, take a substitute, take a lamb, and on, uh, on, the, on that day, slay it and pour the blood on the altar to cover your sin, and I will forgive your sins, and you will not die because the lamb, the Passover lamb, has died in your place. All right? Ah, running out of time here. Uh, Isaiah 53, this is interesting. Isaiah 53, I'm sure most of you know this. Realize that in many Jewish synagogues, when they get to Isaiah 53, so clear a reference to Jesus, is it? All right? That they'll skip right over it. Now, if you think that's kind of funny of Jewish people to do that, Christians do this too. There are places in the Bible that don't fit in our thinking, and we just skip over them. Right? Think of the Psalms of Innocence, for example. Right? Well, we don't like those. We can't figure out what that, how to fit that in. Right? We'll just pass over it. Right? <clears throat> Other passages, too. Talk about it another time. Look at Isaiah 53. So, verse 3. Talking about one to come. The suffering servant. He was he, he, male, male. Descendant, right? He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice the substitutionary language there in the pronouns. He, singular, has borne our plural griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Who was it that killed Jesus? It wasn't the Jews. Now, if you're a good Christian and you've been paying attention, you'll say, it was me. It was my sin that caused Jesus to die. Wrong. Read the text. Who killed Jesus? God did. God the Father killed God the Son to fulfill His promise and keep His word. To satisfy the demands of his own justice. God the Father offers up his own only begotten son for the sins of his people. Read on. He, singular, was wounded for our plural transgression, our sins. He was crushed. Think of Genesis 3.15. He will crush. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the judgment, the penalty that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. In verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Not the Jews. Not the Christians. God. To keep his word. Fulfill his promise. Satisfy his own demands. Perfect obedience. Penalty for disobedience. Here is justice and love in the person of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Turn back to Luke 24. I'm sorry, one more. The Catechism says, finally fulfilled it in his son. Can't skip that. Let's uh, look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember the Tanakh, right? They're all pointing to Jesus, right? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God takes the sins of his people and gives them to Jesus. And God takes the obedience, the righteousness of Jesus and gives it to his people. Perfect obedience. Penalty for disobedience. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. Big word, very important in the Bible, to turn aside God's wrath. That wrath, his anger, his judgment, his justice against all who have sinned. Turned aside through the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, not overlooking sin, not grading on a curve, not winking, taking sin seriously, an offense that deserves death. He's just, but he's the justifier. He's the one who takes a substitute sacrifice in the place of the guilty, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Salvation has always been, is now, and will ever be by faith in the work of another. Luke 24. Let's see if we can do this somewhat expeditiously. Luke 24. The gospel message produces gospel messengers. New Testament scholars and scholars of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation like to focus on verse 44 and point out that the whole Bible points to Jesus, right? A lot of people have written up about this uh, as well, and that's all well and good. That's certainly true as we have seen, right? But all too often they overlook verse 46, which is equally important. Look at verse 46. Thus it is written 
that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Thus, what is written? Missions. We are not only to read the Bible messianically, we are to read Genesis to Malachi missiologically as well. That missions isn't something that starts in Matthew chapter 28. Thus it is written. What's written? Well, look at the text. That repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. We're to read the Bible missiologically. Not just messianically. Why? Because the gospel message produces gospel messengers. It lets loose a whole cadre and army of the Lord to make known the name of the Lord, the works of the Lord, in the world of the Lord. Israel was a missionary people. I remember when I pastored in Michigan, I had one of the elders come up to me and said, you know, I heard that somebody said that Israel was a missionary people. That's not right. I said, oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. I know you don't believe me, right? Go ahead. Look at Deuteronomy 4. All right. You're all from Missouri, right? The show me state. All right. Come on. Deuteronomy 4. Quickly, 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 quick, 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 quick. Deuteronomy 4. Israel was to be a light to the nations. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 6. Keep them and do them, those commands, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous is all his law that I set before you today? Israel was to be a light to the nations by how they lived, separate, distinct, holy, before the people, and people surrounding them would see Israel and say, what kind of people is that? And come to them like a moth to a flame. They were to be a light to the nations. And now in the New Testament, what happens is the message isn't come and see. The message is go and tell. Now we go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is what I was getting at when we preached through the book of Ephesians, right? And why the apostle is so intent, having finished the first three chapters where he outlays the gospel, And chapters 4 through 6, where he's talking about holy living and the unity of the church. Why is that so important? He says, because you are a separate people. You're a called out people. You're a distinct people. You're a holy people. You're God's people. And how you live before a watching world draws their attention just like a magnet. Holiness, holy living, separate living has a magnetic effect. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. 
He says, that's why you should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Why? He expects you to be asked. Why? Because of how you live. And then give verbal testimony. Tell people, I live like this because Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus suffered for me. Jesus paid my, the penalty for my sins. Jesus gave his righteousness to me when I was disobedient. And I love him, and I want you to love him too. The gospel message produces gospel messengers. Meditate on these things. For a few thousand years this afternoon, Let them seep into your heart, into your mind, into every fiber of your being, so that our mission statement isn't on paper, but it's written on the tablets of your heart and seen and evidenced in your lives tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so that when we come back next week, we can talk about it. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Let's pray now. Father, we ask that you would touch our hearts and that you would touch our lives, that indeed we would be gospel messengers. Help us to be bold, not obnoxious, not brash, but bold, with the boldness that the Holy Spirit himself provides. And grant this for the sake of Jesus, who lived the life that we have not lived and died the death that we deserve. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen and amen.